0: Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4, you'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin or on our website if you're viewing remotely. James, chapter 4. Uh, we continue uh, the section in the middle of the book, probably the pinnacle of James's um, challenging, convicting rebuke The high point of his admonition to the readers, possibly one of the strongest rebukes and admonitions in the New Testament. And for the book of James, that's saying something. Um, Starting in chapter 3 and moving forward, James has been focusing on the things that cause conflict in the body, the things that create discord with the tongue and its propensity to bless God and curse people made in his image. He connects it to being set on fire by hell. And we may be tempted to think James is being hyperbolic, but it's clear as he escalates each example that he's convinced we, if anything, make too little of, not too much of, the things that cause for conflict in the body. Then, in the second half of chapter 3, asking the question of who's wise. James, always practical, says, you'll tell the tree by its fruit. Let the one who is wise show it in the works of meekness and wisdom. But, we saw, if you have selfish, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to me false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Notice again the escalation. It's not simply not God's wisdom. It's not simply earthly. It's not simply unspiritual. It is demonic. Last week, Mitchell, starting in chapter four, showed us how our desires that wage war in our hearts lead us in the pursuit of the things we want, to war with others, to murder others. And again, James's point, it's worse than you think. We minimize them. I just got a little short with them. I just got a little snippy I looked through my concordance, did not find snippy anywhere. Well, no, there's a tendency when we want to downplay our sin, we call it by words that the Bible doesn't call it because then texts don't come to bear. What, what text do you turn to to deal with snippiness? Anger. Oh, there's just all sorts of passages coming in. And so this morning, the progression continues. James was showing us that our interpersonal conflict in the body is far, far worse than we think, now he's going to take it up a step even further. That our pursuit of our pleasures, the ruling of our hearts in pleasure, and the things we want, not only causes us to murder and war with our brothers and sisters in the body, but it causes us to commit spiritual adultery against God. Let's, Let's read. I'd like to read chapter 4, 1 to 10. Because six is the pivot. If you want to track the flow of the argument, that the strongest accusation is made in four and five. And then six, he brings out hope. He brings out grace, and it's a call to repentance. We'll look at that next week. I'm not even sure we'll get through all my notes this week, but let's let's just read the entire passage. It's, It's one flowing thought. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have not because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Lord God, as we look at this challenging passage, I pray that you would give us Grace to receive it. It is a hard word. And we are tempted to flatter ourselves and ignore our faithlessness to you. But Lord, because you give more grace, because there is a remedy, because there is forgiveness, because there is restoration, do not allow us to minimize our sin, to flatter ourselves. But let us see the ugliness of sin in our hearts and our lives. The ways that we stray from you. Let us heed your call and trust in your greater grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You can see that really this is one flowing thought. In some senses, this is a flowing thought that started in chapter 3. The chapter division isn't even terribly helpful in my mind. And and themes are united here. For instance, if you turn back to chapter 3 to give you some of the flowing thought, At the heart of demonic wisdom, we learned, in verse 14, is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what's at the heart of demonic wisdom. Well, last week we saw, what's at the heart of our conflict? Verse 2, you desire, you do not have, that's some of the same word family for selfish ambition, and you covet, same words. So you get the connection of thought. At the root of demonic wisdom is selfish ambition and coveting, and at the root of our interpersonal conflict are the same two things. And he defines those two things in verse 1 as your pleasures, your desires. Well, that's what shows up again here. We're dealing with the same thing. James is showing us from different angles it's evil. He shows us first sort of conceptually, how the world's wisdom and these values lie against the truth and are opposed to God's wisdom. He shows us how selfish ambition and coveting leads to all of our conflict, great and small, from world wars to temper tantrums in bedrooms. All of it stemming from that. Now he's going to show us how that same evil theme those same desires, those same pleasures, what they do vertically with our relationship with God. And it's worse than we think. But there's more grace. I, we're going to primarily get to that next week, but I've got to say that up front. Don't be afraid to receive God's full diagnosis. If this message this morning is hard, it's because God wants to restore you, He gives more grace, He wants peace. The worst place we could be, I think, is to make ourselves God's enemy, which is what the text says, and yet tell ourselves, no, 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 I'm his friend. We're at peace. We're reconciled. No, better to see the enmity we have with the Lord and to repent, to humble ourselves, and to receive his greater grace. Okay, that's all introduction. We've got to pick up first with the impotent pursuit of pleasure. This is how James connects. The interpersonal conflict with the vertical. The interpersonal conflict with the vertical. The impotent pursuit of pleasure. I say impotent because here the the desires are unfulfilled. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. What's being pictured here is, is these desires that have already fought for and taken control of the heart. Desires that aren't necessarily for bad things in and of themselves but desires that rule, desires that are the ends, final, desires that have become idols. In the heart, they rule, and here these desires are unfulfilled. So, the impotent pursuit of pleasure. We learned that you pursue what you desire without prayer. When you're in this state, when your heart is ruled by your pleasures and what you want, when that is your greatest priority. You pursue your desire without prayer. You do not have, the end of verse 2, because you do not ask. Now again, James is riffing off of Jesus' teaching. I mean, Jesus made very clear statements. Ask, and you will receive. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? James has already indicated that God is generous and giving. In chapter 1, we know he's the father of lights from whom every good gift comes. And yet, there's a tendency when we want what we want, we're to get it. We take matters into our own hands. We don't talk to the Lord. We go pursue it ourselves. You pursue your desire without prayer. Why? Because you're too busy warring with others. You're too busy warring with others. That's the conflict we just saw last week. I know how to get what I want. I know what I have to do to get what I want. And I don't want to humble myself and ask for God's help. I'll just reach out my hand and take it. I'll just bark at my children and leave me alone. I'll just glare at my wife and she'll stop bothering me. I'll get what I want. And by pursuing it in that way, I'm warring. And what I'm not doing is praying. You see what's what's in view here, and why I think James set up wisdom at the end of chapter three, is it's not just the objects of our desires that he's got in view, but the strategy of, of getting them. How will you get your object? You want something? I mean, and this gives be the challenge of trying to determine if I want something too much, right? I mean that was the test for Abraham. It is good for Abraham to love Isaac. God wants to test Abraham, but Abraham, do you love Isaac more than you love me, right? Loving your children is a good thing. Can you make an idol out of your children? Absolutely you can. And you frequently won't know that you've done that until you're tested on it. I hope I have not made my children an idol. I hope I've not made my wife an idol. I'll find out the day the Lord tests me. I recognize it's a possibility. I pray he'd guard my heart from that. But I don't know until I can't have both. When I have to choose, which one do I pursue? That's that's when you find out. So it's about the strategy. You're too busy, warring with others, because you walk in worldly wisdom. That's just the connection. It's not that he's saying we have this innate desire to kill and murder. Look at the language of verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. The murdering is brought in as a strategy to get the desired object. There are some people who maybe just want to go clobber somebody. That's not what he has in view here. You want something, and the strategy you adopt to get it is to fight. It's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. This is exactly what Jesus said. You hate somebody in your heart, that's a little murder tree. And yes, it's full-grown, mature fruit involves killing people. But the baby swatting at you because it's angry that you took its toy. Those are little murder berries. No, they are. You think of an 18-year-old flailing around. People fall to the ground. People go to the hospital. We only laugh because of how powerless the child is. But at heart, in its heart, it's that little murder tree. It's a sapling murder tree. The same thing with warfare. See, the wisdom of the world advocates... It kills for what it desires. If you get in my way, I'll knock you down. It's from the beginning of the book of Genesis. You remember Lamech? The first poet and songwriter in the Old Testament. Chapter 4, Genesis, Cain's great-grandson. Calls his wives together and he tells them what he does to the guy who disrespects him. The guy who wounds him, I pay back. The wisdom in this world says, do what you need to get what you want it kills for what it desires and it wars for what it covets that's what we saw in verse 2 not hyperbolic language let me read a couple passages to you proverbs 12:18 there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts the tongue of the wise brings healing psalm 55:20 20 to 21 my companion stretched out his hand against his friend he violated his covenant His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The Bible consistently speaks of the warfare we can make, not with real swords, but with our words, with our actions. We can get into conflict with others. We would do well to name it that. Your likely husband's going to get a lot more um, attention from your wife, and, and grab her attention when you come and say, "I'm sorry, I was warring with you." Than you do when you say, "Sorry, I was snippy." At least I know I get my wife's full attention when I when I speak that way. One of the things we can do in in trying to internalize this is begin to call things what God calls things. Other people have big sins; I have little s- snippiness. Um, so the wisdom of the world says, I'll tell you how to get what you want. You just reach out your hand and take it. And you fight with the people in your way, and you punish them if they thwart you. You know, that sort of sulking when you didn't get your way? All that is is just wrath being poured out. I'll teach you to thwart me, King Jeremy. And and it's It's evil. It's evil. So we're too busy warring to pray and ask God. Even though Jesus tells us, if you ask, you receive. James has told us, if you ask, God gives. So that's the first impotence in seeking pleasure. The second, point B here, or you ask wrongly. He envisions two possibilities. Some of the Christians he's writing to are not even praying at all. They're just going out and getting theirs. Others are praying But he says, you you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, or you ask wrongly. So here he's viewing your prayers are unanswered. Your prayers are unanswered. Now again, this should give us pause for thought because James has already told us that God gives wisdom to all who ask. Verse 1, and I mean chapter 1, verse 5. He's already told us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. So why is it that God might say no when we ask for something that is good? Lord, give me that promotion. Lord, grant us conception. Give us that child. Lord, bring me a wife. Bring me a husband. Lord, help me find a new car. These are all good things I'm naming. And yet, we can turn them from good things into the most important things. And because God only gives us good gifts, sometimes he does not give us our idols precisely because he's good. And he knows what's best for us. You're blank here. God is generous and only gives good gifts. So what that means is when you ask for something and God says no, he has given you a good gift. In his wisdom, he knows what you need. I'm not saying every time God says no to your prayers because you've made an idol out of it. Sometimes God says no, as in John 11, because he wants to reveal the glory of God. Remember they send, Lazarus is sick and they send for him and he waits three days and lets Lazarus die because he wants to glorify God through his resurrection. But a reason the Lord may say no to your prayer is he knows you want it too much. He knows you don't want it for his sake and he only gives you good gifts and he knows that if he would give you this thing, it would consume your heart and destroy you. God only gives good gifts. God is generous and gives good gifts. But we also got another warning in chapter 1. Turn back to James 1. After that promise of God giving, there is a condition, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, but not reproach. He'll be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now remember, when we studied this, I suggested you the idea of doubting really is the issue of inward division. That double-minded, the term that either James or Paul, as best as we can tell, created, coined, split, sold, all the way down the middle of the being, there's this divide, there's a vacillation. I I highlight this because that word shows up again, only other time in the book, down in chapter 4, Verse 8, these are connected ideas. When he calls these people who are worshiping their desires, who are pursuing their desires to repentance, he tells them in verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So perhaps the reason why the Lord doesn't give us what we ask for is because we ask wrongly to spend it on our pleasures. We're asking in a double-minded way. We're asking inwardly divided. We're not coming sincerely as God-worshippers, but we're coming as stuff-worshippers. Double-minded. In fact, I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 14. There's a a poignant picture of this in in Ezekiel. Uh, This this is uh, the only passage in the Bible that I know of that directly speaks of heart idols. I think it fits our theme here very well. You'll remember, Ezekiel is taken... The Kabar River, one of the earlier waves of the deportation to Babylon. Israel has not, J- sorry, Israel, Jerusalem has not yet fallen. And so the people by the Kabar River, people by Ezekiel, they want an update on how Jerusalem's doing. We read in chapter 14 Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and they sat before me. That looks good. They're respectful. They're sitting before the prophet. They've come to God's prophet. they come to the right place. You want a word from God, you go to God's prophet. They come and they adopt a respectful posture. This is looking good again. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? So, Ezekiel wouldn't necessarily be able to tell this overtly, but the Lord tells him supernaturally. They may look like their sincere God worshippers They may look like my faithful people. They've taken idols into their hearts. Therefore, speak to them and says, say to them, and says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, Answer him as he comes with a multitude of his idols, so that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations for any one of the house of Israel the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword, and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Let me me summarize. If you're going to worship other gods, you do better to not pretend to worship the living God. The Lord is provoked to extreme because of their hypocrisy, their insincerity. It's, It's worse. It's not good to go worship other gods. It's not good to take idols into your heart. It's worse to do so and pretend you haven't. To come, sit before God's word. That's similar to what James is saying here. Because, B2 here, you are really a worshiper of your pleasure. Worshiper of your pleasure. Pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. God gave us all good things to enjoy. There's all sorts of pleasure in this world. The pleasure of art and aesthetics, sunset, sunrise, sunrise. Pleasures of food and culinary taste, pleasures of music, pleasures of fellowship, pleasures of sport and leisure, pleasure in work. There there is a lot of pleasure in this world. But when pleasure, whatever it is that pleases us, sits on the throne of our hearts, we, we are no longer worshiping God, but we're worshiping the stuff. And God simply becomes a cosmic genie, a cosmic ATM, a cosmic gift distributor, and God is not mocked, and God is not fooled. We are really worshipers of our pleasures. The word here, to spend, really means to spend freely. It's the, it's the word used for the prodigal son when he wasted his inheritance. He just wanted to just lavishly spend it on his pleasures. That's, that's what James is saying. And this is where it can be tough, because I don't know how much I want something. Until I don't get it. So Lord, give, give, me that, give me that promotion. Give me that child. Give me that wife. Give me that job. Give me that thing. And, and I know I want it. The Lord knows I want it too much. He knows that if he would give it to me, it would turn my heart from him. And so he says no, because he only gives good gifts. And then, when God says no, we start to realize just how much we wanted the thing we were asking for. Um, so again, to reiterate from what Mitchell said last week, these pleasures are not always overtly wicked. We hear pleasures, and we think it's always got to be a bad thing. Now, certainly it can be a desire for something wicked. I mean, if you plug it into last week's message, the most obvious example is the mugger, the robber. He's fighting, he's murdering to get what he wants, right? I mean, that's that's pretty straightforward. But we also saw it can be desire for something good, valued too highly. Let me give you one example. I'll give you two. Genesis 30, verse 1. Jacob's sister wives get in a fertility competition. They start bringing their handmaidens in. And in Genesis 30, verse 1, Rachel saw that she had bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. That is when you want a good thing too much. And God gave her both. I'll give you children, then you die. And she died in the childbirth of her secondborn son. That's wanting a good thing too much. That's idolatry. Remember Ahab? he wanted the vineyard of Naboth, 1 Kings. Twenty one four. And he, he goes and he makes a good approach at first. tries to buy it from him. Nothing wrong about Ahab's first pass with Naboth. Hey, I'll give you a better one. I'll give you money. Whatever you think is fair. But Naboth says, "No, I won't sell you my family inheritance." And like I've said before, frequently it's it's not till our desires are thwarted that we find out we've actually made idols. We've actually been worshiping graven images in our hearts. And Ahab went into his house. First Kings twenty one four and vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He was clinically depressed. And his wife comes in, and they hatch a murder scheme. where They accuse Naboth of blasphemy. He's put to death. And then all of a sudden, that vineyard's on the market. Exactly the type of thing James is talking about. Wanting a vineyard is not a bad thing. Ahab doesn't find out how badly he wants a vineyard until he can't get it. So it's a mistake to think we know the state of our hearts. While we're getting what we want, I don't really know how much I want it. I mean, you get this. you don't. While my neck doesn't have a shooting, last week I was chopping some wood. I had a nasty pain in my neck. I didn't realize how much I don't want a pain in my neck until I got one. And then all of a sudden, I really don't want that. And I don't realize how much I prize my comfort, prize the full use of my body, until I don't have it. So, um, our desire for something good valued too highly. So, So, here's the thing. God's given us all these good things to enjoy, but he's given us them to enjoy in him and for his sake. Augustine famously said in his confessions, he loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, which he loves not for your sake. Which he loves not for your sake. So, the real test of an idol in your heart is this Will you sin to get it? Will you sin to keep it? Will you sin if you don't get it? Can you still worship the Lord, give thanks if you don't get it? Now, there's still room for sorrow, there's still room for grief. Every every time the Lord takes one of his sons and daughters home and leaves grieving family members, the question is, can they in their grief still worship the Lord? And we're okay. Or you could be like Ahab, lying in your bed, and pout. Well, it's worse than even we think than that. James's next statement in verse four is so strong and out of character for him that some of the copyists even struggled with this. Uh, Some of your translations, if you're using the New King James or the King James, it doesn't say, you adulterous people. It says, you adulterers and adulteresses. The Greek just says adulteresses. The ESV's footnote's way better than the ESV. He's, He's calling the combined address churches adulteresses, harlots. Direct address. Up till now, it's always my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers. Now it's harlots. And we're likely to, what are you talking about, James? What are you talking about? As we consider the deadly danger of spiritual adultery, the deadly danger of spiritual adultery. James needs us to see it's worse than we think when these desires rule our heart, when we are worshipers of them instead of God. What he's saying is when we want the gifts rather than the giver, when we want the stuff more than the God who gives the stuff, when we want the creation more than we want the creator, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. The fact that he uses the feminine plural is key. It's not adulterous people. Plural masculine nouns, like my brothers, can absolutely be used to speak to a mixed group, just like he might say, you guys, a group of men and women. But the reverse is never true. By putting it in feminine plural, adulteresses, he's making a very clear connection with the Old Testament and God's repeated metaphor of Israel as God's unfaithful and adulterous wife. He's applying all of that to the church. Such a pursuit of pleasure is really adultery against God. I want to pause and make another point. It's not that such pursuits are like adultery. We learn that God created marriage to image the reality of God's relationship with his people, of Christ and the church. The real thing is the union of God and his people and Christ and his church. Marriage is the thing that's kind of like that. And so here, he calls the church guilty of violating that covenant. It's not like adultery it is what adultery at its heart is and we need we need to not choke on this we need to receive this such a pursuit of pleasure is really adultery against god so point one let's take a look at the old testament context israel broke her covenant with the lord let me show you one of many passages turn to jeremiah 3 jeremiah 3 I think James expects us to make the connection. There's a long prophetic tradition of calling God's erring and faithless people adulteresses. Jeremiah 3, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? Pause. When you see Israel and Judah, In the same passage, it's referring to the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. You remember that first, Shalmaneser comes in and gobbles up the ten northern tribes. They get disciplined. And then, a hundred years or so later, Nebuchadnezzar comes along and takes away the two southern tribes. That's what he's speaking of here, okay? The Lord said to me, in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought... After she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. Now, now verse 11 is absolutely shocking. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So get this. Two women abandon their husband. They go off commit adultery, one never comes back, just off she goes. The other sees the Lord's discipline of her, does the same thing, and comes back in pretense. Who's more righteous? Which sister is more righteous? Israel, the 10 northern tribes are more righteous. Why? They recognize they're being faithless. They don't pretend they're not being faithless. It's those who take idols into their hearts and still pretend and return and would appear to be God's faithful people that are the least righteous. Which means people in this room are in the most danger of this. There's a sense in which when somebody wants what they want and they just leave, they depart from us to show they're never of us. It's a tragedy. There's more integrity to that than doing that inwardly and showing up. It's, it's, a, it's a radical statement. And James is bringing to bear all this imagery with that term, adulteresses. And it's mist with adulterous people or adulterers and adulteresses. No, he's, he's bringing the prophetic pattern of calling God's people to repentance from their faithlessness to him. So Israel broke her covenant with the Lord. You want to see, we might look at this in the ABF, but Ezekiel 16 is another vivid picture of this. And the reality, the sad reality, is Christians break their covenant with Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 1-3, Paul speaks this way. That's the danger we face. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere devotion to Christ. Let's let's take that last statement of verse 3 and look at it again from another angle. You ask and you don't receive because you ask to spend it on your passions. James then says, that's spiritual adultery. What that means is what it's like is a wife coming to her husband saying, can I have a couple hundred dollars? What for? So I can fly, meet up with the person I met on Facebook and have a glorious weekend in Las Vegas. When you and I come to God asking for goodies and stuff for their sake alone. Why? Because I value the job more than anything. Because I value marriage more than anything. Because I value a child or my health more than anything. I'm coming to my husband. I'm coming to the one who has redeemed me. I'm coming to the one who's in covenant with me and asking for his help in cheating on him. That's how ugly this is. That's what James is saying. We ask wrongly because we want to spend it on our pleasures, you adulteresses. That's what he says. It's far, far worse than we imagine. He goes on to substantiate this. He says, back in James, Do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. What's he saying? The reality of this is that we were once enslaved to this world. Remember we went through Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your former trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the earth. Does it work in the sons of disobedience? We, we were married to another, and we were enslaved to another, and we were freed, and Christ came, and he spoke peace to those of us who are near and those of us who are far. He died for us. He freed us. We were raised with him, joined with him, united with him. He gave us his spirit as an engagement ring, as it were, as a seal. Then, what do you think in that metaphor it means when we go and flirt with and spend time with our old lover and master the world? What do you think that means? Christ died to free us from those things. And we go and we have a nice, cozy lunch with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, he says, whoever intends to be a friend of the world. Now, that word intends, I think, is key. For all of us, the temptation to love the world is present. That pulling that we have to fight against. I think the word in this text is a little stronger. It means to decide. The person who wants to do both. I'm going to stay married to Christ, and I'm going to flirt with the world. That person, you're God's enemy. That's what James is saying. It's worse than you think. And for all of us, as our hearts tug and pull towards this world, we need to fight that like it's the death that it is. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever intends to be a friend of the world. Now, here, the world can be used in many different ways in the New Testament. For God so loved the world. The world can also be viewed as a big space. Here, I think what's clearly in view is loving the world's values, and by adopting its wisdom and methods. It's the world system, the value structure of the world, the wisdom of the world, it's valuing with the word values. We've already seen that earlier in chapter 2, right, where they they're, they're given the good seats to Mr. Goldfinger, the with the purple robe. Because the world values wealth and so the church was valuing wealth. They adopted the world's values. We can do that. We saw at the end of chapter 3 that adopted the world's wisdom in pursuing their values. So we are guilty of loving the world, being a friend of the world, when we begin to shift our values that God has given us of what's important in life for what the world says is valuable, and when we begin to pursue those objects with the wisdom of the world. That is what is in view here. Jesus spoke of this in Luke 8. What choked out the seeds so that it bore no fruit that fell on thorny ground? Luke 8, 14. As for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Choked by those things. 1 John says even more starkly, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But that is a drastic statement. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think John and James are speaking at the same level of intensity with the same stakes. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. world was going to drag you to hell with it. The world and its passions and the worldlings in it are, are careening towards the abyss. And Christ comes and dies and marries the church. Technically is betrothed to the church. The wedding feast of the Lamb is yet future. And we would go and flirt with and spend time with, become friends with the one from whom we were freed. It's the ultimate act of betrayal and disloyalty. And we think we can have it both ways. I don't think it's that we want to forsake our husband and our our redeemer, but we think we can do both. Because we don't think it's as bad as it is, which is why I think James is spelling it out for us. Makes himself God's enemy. pick up the pace here. Makes himself God's enemy. That's a strong statement. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read about God disciplining his children, God correcting us. Here, this is a strong term. The person who intends to do both, the person who I, I want to, I plan to, I intend to be friends with the world and stay united with Christ. I have, if I do that, made myself God's enemy. I have made myself God's God's enemy. And again, this goes back to Jesus' clear teaching. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You will grow to hate the other. This also then means that worldliness is the anti-gospel. What do I mean? The message of the gospel is you who are far from God can have peace with him. You can be at peace with your creator. He doesn't have to be your enemy. You don't have to be at war with him. You can be at peace. You can enter his household and enter his family and become his son and his daughter. Would, would you have peace with God? Now that's the message of the gospel. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that you can be at peace with God. Here's how you can be his enemy. It's the opposite of the gospel. What does the gospel bring? Peace between God and man. What does worldliness bring? You're his enemy. It's worse than we think. We don't want to believe that. We want to think, God will, God will overlook this. It'll be okay. We want to think, it's fine. James says, no, some of us here, Through our willful desire to worship and serve the things of this world, have in fact made ourselves God's enemy. And we're gonna have to pause here for a time of communion, but I gotta give a word of encouragement and hope. We've got to at least look at verse six. He gives more grace. But don't misunderstand that. Sometimes I think Christians think, He gives more grace. Yeah, God's great. He just overlooks things. He'll forgive me, it's fine. What is the grace God gives? The prescription to weep and howl and lament. That's how God gives more grace. Abase yourself. Become undone. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. These God does not despise. That's the grace he gives. That's the call to return. It's like saying to an adulterous wife, if you will get down... On your knees and beg for forgiveness your husband will take you back there's more grace it's not that there's more grace just go on sending that grace may abound look at this we know what God did for Israel we read it in Jeremiah 3 he gave Israel a decree of divorce and sent her away and I think James is expecting us to go whoa, 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 whoa. if I'm if I'm in the same seat as Israel I'm committing the same adultery as Israel what will the Lord do to me Oh, he gives more grace. Oh, praise God. What, what, how do I avail myself of this grace? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves for the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's how God gives more grace. To people in this situation, don't don't misunderstand grace. There is a path of return. There is a path of reconciliation. There is a path of peace, and it involves abasement, humbling of self. We're to turn now to come to the Lord's table. In one sense, have table fellowship with our God and Savior, with our betrothed husband. He He invites. All of you to come who know him through faith, he he invites you to come not in your sinlessness, but in sincerity. And just as we saw that it's worse to come and sit before the prophet of God in Ezekiel 14 when you've got idols in your heart than to not come at all. Just as we saw in Jeremiah 3 that it's worse to pretend to return to the Lord. If you have idols in your heart, let this pass. Paul warns us to examine ourselves again you you don't need to be sinless but you do need to be faithful you need to have a sincere heart for the lord you need to come in sincerity we need his grace we need to fight we will fight our wandering hearts that are prone to wander every day we also need to be committed to that fight